Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is December 1st, which means we're turning over a new leaf, right? Everything will change. And our guest today, Amy Walter, publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. So it's like you're like the person and your name's in the title. It's I pretty know. good. How about, that's pretty good. The, Congrats. Thank you so much. It's it's uh, big shoes to fill, but feeling really good about this. We have a great team. Um, yes, the only better title, um, I think, in American politics is to have the word supreme in your name. You know, Supreme Allied Commander, oh, yeah. Supreme Court Justice. I didn't put the Cook Political re- Supreme Report. Maybe I should have done that. Well, you know, you can negotiate that on your on your next go around. <laughs> That's right. So I, I, I warned you that I was going to go all Donald Rumsfeld on you today. Um, the Of course, Donald Rumsfeld famously said there were the known knowns, there were the known unknowns, and then, then there were the Unknown, unknown unknowns, which seems to, I don't know, kind of define our era right now. And so the other thing I want to ask you about is, and I'm, I'm just sort of like setting up what I want to, the themes of, of our discussion today, um, what matters and what doesn't matter? Because mm-hmm. there, there seems to be this massive delta between what the political class and the media and the punditry thinks will move the needle, will matter, and what actually does matter. Because it feels we've spent the last five or six years going, I thought that would make a difference, but it didn't, right? Right. I'm sure you try to figure this out. So the obvious question on this morning, December 1st, is the U.S. Supreme Court is dealing with Roe versus Wade. This is the much anticipated, um, all eyes on a case that could lead to overturning Roe v. Wade, which by any definition, right, is a BFD. So give me your sense on how that might play out in the midterms, because if that doesn't matter, I don't know what would. Right. I mean, this is really, to me, the question is both, is it overturned or is it where we get to a place that it's really more of, um, you know, there is legal language that keeps Roe intact, but undercuts some fundamental understandings of what it is, right? So it's more muddled and it's not as easy as yes or no, black or white. So we could be in a situation where it is much more challenging to to see this as a as a as a clear political issue or wedge issue in the way if if it, if it were overturned. That said, not only would it upend the midterms, but I am thinking about each and every state. I mean, if, if ultimately what we get to is a situation where there is no constitutional right and each and every state then makes its own rules on this, every single governor's race in the country is going to be a referendum on this issue, um, as well as right the debates in Congress. And so, uh, you know, this makes for quite a dynamic situation. The other question, of course, is, you know, is this one of those issues that while it is, people uh, are are pretty well, are, are pretty clear on their opinions, we hear, right? You're either yeah. yes or no, but actually most people are somewhere in between, right? And that makes it also a challenging issue to, 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 to use with folks who are in that in-between group. We know where the pro-life, we know where the pro-choice are going to fall out. But what about those folks who uh, see themselves 
somewhere in agreement with both sides. And that's a that's a pretty significant group of people. Yeah. So public opinion is actually muddled. We might come up with a muddled decision by the court, yeah. but the polls would suggest, at least the national polls uh, would suggest that, that the a very strong majority of folks at least tell pollsters they don't want to see Roe versus that's Wade right. ov- overturned. Although, as you point out, um, there does appear to be at least a, a plurality or at least a large number of people who are kind of neither on you know, the no abortion under any circumstances versus um, the yes, abortion up until the moment of 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 birth. So who is most passionate? I mean, so let's 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 game this out a little. Right. Let, let's just. You know, I I, don't, I personally, my gut sense says they're not going to overturn Roe versus Wade explicitly right. because there are ways right. of undermining it without pulling the pin on that particular bomb. But let's say that they they did. Who is will be the most passionate, the most motivated? Where will it actually make a difference? So, Charlie, for years, the argument has been that the pro life side has been much more passionate mm-hmm. and has been, been much more focused than the pro-choice side, which makes a whole bunch of sense. Forget about it just being an abortion issue. Take any issue where you are on the losing side. You are much more passionate about that issue than if you're on the winning side, right? Because you're constantly trying to get your issue to the finish line. Now, let's reverse that then. Right Now we have it overturned. Now you're going to get an entire community of voters, most of whom, that's not fair, not most of whom, but many of whom have never lived in a world without Roe v. Wade um, to become engaged on this. And I do think it is going to be an incredible motivating tool, not just for Democrats writ large, but in terms of voters who may not even be particularly engaged in politics, right? I don't know. I don't follow politics. I'm not paying much attention. But this is one of those things where you go, whoa, 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 right? I I didn't think this was actually going to happen. Now I'm paying a little more attention. Now I'm a little more engaged. We really haven't seen this kind of fight, Charlie, at a national level since 1992. The world has changed a lot, obviously, since then. But I I do I agree with you that when you then move from the loser to the winner, that 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 the pro-choice side, which has been much quieter, not as in, intense, will become in, incredibly engaged. Well, and there's the other little twist here, which is that it, it's been easy for politicians to be pro-life because they know they'll never be able uh-huh. to do much about it. Uh-huh. Now, if if those limits are lifted, you're going to see some of the splits. In fact, you're already seeing them in, in, in Washington between the absolutists who believe that uh, abortion ought to be banned in all circumstances, including rape and incest, versus those um, who used to be the more, I would say, kind of mainstream pro-lifers who would say we need to have some exceptions. I mean, this Marjorie Taylor Greene back and forth with Nancy Mace I don't want to get too deep into this, but a lot of this is, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene ripping Nancy Mace, who's a conservative Republican, for being pro-abortion. Um, what she's referring to is the fact that Nancy Mace, who in fact was a victim of a sexual assault, does favor exceptions, exemptions for um, pregnancies caused by rape, which 
mm-hmm. are overwhelmingly positive. So, so again, this discussion then changes because now you have legislators and governors who might have to endorse legislation. Obviously, is 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 going to be somewhat shocking to some people out of you know pro-choice uh, voters, but also uh, split the pro-life constituency. Well, that's a really good point too, because again, depending on the state that you live in, right? The Republican candidates in those different states. So if you're running as a Republican in a more rural part of the state versus a more urban or suburban part, your position on this issue will probably sound quite different, right? And you are going to see, I think, a uh, on the Democratic side as well, um, this ability the 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 challenge of how that gets messaged right i mean the messaging from the democratic side for years has been look republicans are trying to take this away and they and, and the, here are the ways that they've slowly been chipping at fundamental right uh to abortion and yet that hasn't been enough to the, make abortion the hasn't felt it, real yeah correct correct yeah, yeah. So this this could I mean this, this very clearly could um, dominate the midterms depending on what they do. Okay, so you you've you've used the the M word here, which is messaging, mm. and there is this I, I notice a rather significant debate on the Democratic side about um, whether or not they really have a messaging problem. Biden's uh, poll numbers are messaging, or whether it's a substance problem. And then, of course, you have a rather substantial number of, of folks on the Democratic side who seem to think that this is all the fault of the news media. So again, let's step back for a moment. <laughs> Joe Biden's got some really serious problems in terms of the polls. That's his objective reality. Democrats um, are ha- having, you know, face some serious headwinds. Some of these generic ballots. How much of this is the media, is messaging, and how much of it is just the political, the underlying political fundamentals? I always am, uh, well, in politics, when folks say, oh, it's not us, it's we have a messaging problem, it's not a policy problem, that's kind of like the, when you hear corporate speak, right? When they're like, we, we are uh, in a rebuilding year, right? It's not, or it's maybe the better way to do it is it's the, it's not you, it's me, right? Um, <laughs> and this this awkward defense of something that is, is quite clearly um, about more than, gosh, if voters just knew how great we were, we, we would be in much better shape. Look, the reality is President Biden came into office promising this return to sort of traditional presidenting, being the 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 president that we are used to seeing, one who doesn't tweet and doesn't get in fights with people. Normalcy. Once who he is going to be a normal president who's going to put really competent people around him. We're not going to hear crazy stories about the kinds of people he's putting in his cabinet who have no experience, who traffic in conspiracy theories, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to get these vaccines out and we're going to, as the president said on July 4th, declare independence from COVID, get the economy back and just kind of start chugging along. I think August was such a pivotal month because it was the month in which it became clear that Delta was a real deal so that we were not mm-hmm. independent of COVID. We had the 
botched Afghanistan pullout. And the scenes from the border, especially Haitian Mm -hmm. migrants, you know, huddling under a bridge in Texas, and really the sense that from voters that that this promise of of normalcy or competency really was just not happening. And that's where you see his numbers really start to dip. And then, of course, you start to hear more and more as we get into September about things like inflation. So now hit with another really bad, bad bit of news and the bad bit of reality. In all of that, he, the president and the administration knows that they also are under a time crunch. If they are going to get anything done with a Democratic House and barely a Democratic Senate, they've got to do it in the first year Mm-hmm. of presidency. We know that now, right? You can basically even if you have big majorities in the House and the Senate, you've basically you've got 1 year to make any meaningful legislation before the midterm elections and then the likelihood is you lose that majority. So get it done now. There's one train leaving the station. Put everything you can on it and send it on its way. That plan was working really well until those four things I just mentioned became a reality. So so while the president and the administration are getting infrastructure done and trying to get BBB through and really focusing so much of their time and energy on those things, the rest of the country is like, what about inflation? Mm. What about COVID? I'm still really upset about what happened in Afghanistan. There are, you know, the sense that um, among in many places, right, we're seeing record um, violent deaths uh, uh in cities and in other areas. Um, we have record overdose deaths. So there's just a sense that like the we're, we're in this pandemic that is continuing to hold, have a hold on us, not just because of these mutations, but a hold on us in terms of our mental health, our physical health, our sense of security. And the White House and Congress are focusing on important problems, right? Everybody wants their roads fixed and clean water, but it's not addressing what's immediately in front of us. And nope. that's that's not a messaging problem. <laughs> that's a, you're messaging about something that people just are not, they're not paying attention to it, not because you've done a terrible job of it, but because it's not the biggest priority in their life. It's not the salient issue for them. So I think you're right when you point to August as, as the pivot point where everything seemed to change because there was a sense of optimism. The, the mood of the country was optimistic. And then we get to August. I had this conversation. I'm going to get your take on this. A conversation with somebody. We were talking about, I, I thought the debacle in Afghanistan was a real turning point. And the other person who's very, very savvy made the point. Look, look, nobody's going to, nobody's talking about Afghanistan. Afghanistan will be forgotten by the uh, middle of next year. And I said, yes, but I think that misses the point because something broke. It, mm-hmm. it felt like there was an image, there was a sense, there was a mood that did not survive. Um, August. So it, it, uh-huh. that even even if you're not specifically talking about Afghanistan or one of these specific issues, it just felt like the the sheen came off of, of Joe Biden, is, and and that's, that's and that people point. and that people looked at him and looked at the party in a in a very different way at the end of August than they did say in the middle of July. 
And you can literally see that in the polling, yeah. right? Where, yes, uh, his numbers, President Biden's approval, disapproval numbers were already starting to move before August. So his disapproval ratings were starting to go up, which is just a natural reality of being president, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, you uh, partisans are going to, they're already in their camps, but the partisans who identify as independents, they start moving into their camps. And so, you know, it's we live in a world where, you know, the idea of a president getting anything more than a two or three month honeymoon is just impossible. But it really did flip in August. And where it flipped most substantially was, right, independent voters. And so I, I wrote about it this week. But the question is, are those voters gettable again for Biden? Or are they, as you said, Charlie, the, you know, their perceptions of Biden have changed. And like a breakup, you know, you can't you can't kind of win them back. Well, or just sort of a dis- disillusionment. So maybe you can get them yeah. back, but but it's never going to be the same again. Maybe that's a the that's the, gl- the, the glow the glow is gone, yeah. and a lot will matter. Of course, what the choice is, you know, is it either or? Um, but I mean, we saw in Virginia that uh, you know that uh, there is an opening for Republicans to run, even in the era of Trump, against yes. against the Democrats. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now, if we were talking to to Democrats, they would say, "Okay, the Democrats seem convinced, given this slump, if they're willing to acknowledge it, which I think most of them are, yeah. um, that that the the solution, the cure, is going to be um, the, these this legislation, spending the money on the infrastructure bill, spending the money on BBB, and and they will say that all of these things are popular. This is really, really good. It's good public policy. It's what we promised. When the public sees all of this great stuff." They're going to come home. What is your take on that? Does does the the do the spending packages do they offer the cure for what ails Joe Biden and the Democrats? So, uh, I was just watching an old Saturday Night Live skit. You may remember this, uh, Will Ferrell, um, where he plays part of the Blue Oyster Cult band. Um, he plays the part of the cowbell. <laughs> player. And uh, Christopher Walken says, you know, the answer to this song, right, is more cowbell. We need more cowbell. And that feels a little bit what what we're hearing from Democrats, right? Just play the cowbell harder and louder, and it's going to break through eventually, right? Everybody's going to reward us for this. So again, it comes back to this disconnect of that is fine. Nobody's saying it's unpopular to have a bridge, or road or childcare, but number one, as we discussed, all of these other things seem to be more pressing priorities. And I think where Republicans really have an opening, especially when you have high inflation and economic anxiety, right? We're seeing over mm-hmm. and over again in these consumer surveys of, of voters feeling very anxious that it's pretty easy for Republicans to turn this on its head. Yeah, you. Lo- we love childcare too. We love the idea of um, being able to get all these other projects fixed. But where's this money going to come from? And we put more money into the system, and what is it going to do? It's going to only exacerbate inflation. And so, when you have an, an audience that's already primed for being anxious or being skeptical. It's going to resonate a lot more once you 
uh, and we're already hearing it, Republicans making their case for why these programs and these policies, while they sound very popular, are only going to make what we're living through worse. And the other thing, Charlie, that I, to me, my, the, the, the quote that really sort of summed up the challenge for Democrats um, was I, I was listening in on a focus group uh, the other week, and this was a younger man. Um, they were asking about, you know, how things are going. And as we've been discussing, the worry among everyone in that group was the cost of stuff going up. And hmm. then then the um, the moderator said, okay, well, can we talk about things that are making you hopeful, right? What, what's good? What are you looking forward to in this next year? And this one man said, you know what? There are too many unknowns for me to feel hopeful. Huh. And so it was this sense of like, yeah, I mean, they're not in a place where it's like, oh, I mean, I remember sitting in on, and you probably do too, talking mm -hmm. to people during the depths of the financial crisis, mm -hmm. right? Where people were literally like, I don't know how we're going to get food on the table. I don't know that we're going to survive this. I've tapped out my 401k. Everything's gone, right? That was a deep, deep fear of like, we are in a dark, dark place. This is much more of... I just feel anxious about another shoe dropping because every time we turn around, right, there's something else that's not going as planned. So th this is this is a challenge for where, what does a president do with this, right? And it, I mean, this is the thing is even when you get good news about the the economy or about the jobs, as we did uh, this this morning about un unemployment, if people are in that anxious mood they're not going to be as receptive to it. They, they won't Correct. process it in the same way. They, they don't feel happy days are here again because there's just too many clouds. Exactly. And they, they may, <laughs> two years from now or a year from now, year and a half from now, but, you know, we're, we're talking about, okay, can this, this mood lift by this arbitrary date, October of 2022, um, versus, well, where are things going to be? in 23 or 24. And that was, you know, you look at the Obama presidency, think about coming in, terrible economy, financial collapse. He had a, obviously a much bigger mm -hmm. um, reservoir of goodwill than Biden came in with. But like Biden, he um, lost a lot of that goodwill over the course of his first year over everything from it was Obamacare, but it was also the bailouts and the stimulus. It took a it took until 2012, really not until the fall of 2012, mm -hmm. for Obama's approval ratings to get back up into the 50% range. So it's po it's possible, but you know. It was it was a long slog to get there. So let's let's talk about what's going on right now with the 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 Omicron variant. Um, you you wrote that you thought it was noteworthy that Biden is saying be concerned but don't panic, and also that we're not going to do lockdowns. But of course we're we're seeing these headlines about new travel restrictions, um, even the floated idea of possible quarantines for international travelers, even international travelers who are completely vaccinated and who tested negative. I'm guessing that calmer heads will prevail, but give me your sense about the challenge faced by by the by the president right now, the administration faced with the, the Omicron, which is another one of these cases of there's so much that we don't know about it. That's right. There's so much we don't know, and there's so much that the public is ready 
the public is ready to move on and they're going to move on regardless. And so um, we're uh, once again, sort of bereft. It's the, I don't know what to feel <laughs> hopeful about right. um, conversation, which is there are people who are going to say, all right, now that this variant's out, we're, we're, we can no longer have this event or uh, I'm no longer traveling to yeah. X, Y, and Z. But I have a sense that folks have kind of said, we're accepting this reality, that this mutation, these mutations are going to continue to go on and on and on and on. Um, and we're just going to live our lives knowing this reality. And yes, there will be some states where you have to wear your mask more. There'll be other states where absolutely nothing changes. But this becomes, as it has been now for these last few months now, a very regional response. And this is where the president's in a no-win situation, right? Because yes. we're not going to lock down. That's fine. We're not going to have more restrictions. That's fine. But LA County can do whatever LA County does. And Miami Beach can do it. It feels very different to you as a person, depending mm -hmm. on where you live. And I think the bigger challenge in this moment where people are feeling this desire to move on, the president's still dealing with these mandates. Whether or not we're going to see companies have to really, truly go to the mat with their employees and what that is is going to look like, that to me is is another really big challenge for a president, even as we have Omicron out here, even as voters are anxious about it, they really are tired of the, the, the fighting. So what are the, what is the politics of the VAX mandate right now? I, I, I get it. First of all, I mean, obviously it was, it was a huge, nothing should be a shock anymore. Um, but the way this became a partisan ideological issue, the, the divide, the demagoguery over it, but it does feel as if the anti-vax, uh, anti-vax mandate folks um, have the upper hand politically. Mm -hmm. Or am I wrong about this? I mean, what 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 are the politics of of vax mandates? Yeah, I want to. I, I feel like there was something out there today looking at mandates that was much less positive on mandates. Mm. Um, but I don't have the number in front of me. But I think you're correct. In that, look, the this is where the news media question comes up. Where what's going to get more attention? People who are dutifully getting uh, vaccinated and going about their lives, or the very much smaller percentage of people who are hell no, I'm never going to do this, and and um, I'm I'm willing to quit my job. I'm willing to you know, stand up for my rights. Those are a much more compelling story news wise than people actually just going about getting a vaccine. So I think the raw numbers are still small, but the attention that they get makes it seem, Charlie, to your point that they have the upper hand. But I do think that because we have so many people already vaccinated, because folks are ready to move on, it almost feels like this mandate thing is behind where voter sentiment is now, right? It's like where it was, if you had said this hmm. in March versus today, don't you think that, right? That, yeah, that no, I, 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 I think sort of right. feel like it now is, and look, this is the reality of dealing with something that's evolving and changing so much, but that had they done this right when the vaccines came out and said, 
we have these vaccines. It's awesome. Everybody get your vaccine. Also, we're going to have mandates. I think, and rightly so, there, m- most people assumed that everyone's going to get a vaccine. Right. This is the most right. awesome thing ever, right? right. Why would That's you what I thought, yeah. So why w- we won't need a mandate. But by the time the mandate fight started, it's now kind of too late. Folks who have moved on, I've gotten, how many people do you talk to, Charlie, who you walk into a room and they go, hey, it's all right, I'm triple vaxxed, right? Yep, exactly. And well, I'm triple vaxxed. you both take off your masks mm-hmm. and say, okay, it's cool. I'm not going to go through a whole rigmarole, Charlie. Is everybody in this place triple vaxxed? I've already decided, look, I've, I've done as much risk mitigation as I possibly can. And now I got to go. I got to go live my life. And I want, and and this is the thing too, that I think is really why that there's this pessimism and this worry. It's that the impact, the emotional impact of these shutdowns, I just think we really have not grappled with that. And as a, as a parent of a school-aged kid, mm-hmm. you know, I see it every day. And we're hearing story after story of other parents who are like, oh my gosh, you know, I can't, there's no therapist we can get an appointment with. They're all booked. Or um, I'm really, really worried about my kid. They've totally withdrawn. I don't know what to do about this. You know, separating from other humans, Charlie, turns out a price. to not be good for humans, right? Like, Okay, well, let me, let me just un- un- underline exactly what you're describing and, and where I'm at and, and the reaction that I'm getting. So I'm planning on going and seeing my, my grandkids in France in a couple of oh. weeks. I have not seen them in two years. It was like, hell with it. I'm going, okay? So um, I'm planning on going. And then I have grandchildren who live in the Washington, D.C. area as well, and I want to go see them for, for New Year's. So last night... I'm reading the Washington Post and they're talking about uh, the Biden administration coming up with these new travel restrictions because of the Omicron that would require you to get a test the day before you got on a plane. Okay, I'm actually not that upset about that if I could find a a test. I am triple vaccinated. But according Mm -hmm. to this report, they were also considering that even if you were triple vaccinated, tested negative, that you would still be subject to a mandatory quarantine for seven days and subject to fines. And I'm like, wait, hold it. Totally. I am, I am pro-vax. I am pro-mandate. I am pro-social distancing. But you're telling me that uh, that even though I have followed the science and triple vaxxed, um, will have tested negative when I come back from France, I will still have to be quarantined. I mean, there's there's a certain point at which you do reach this breaking point where this is nuts. Now, of course, I tweeted this, and a lot of people say, "Ah, see, Charlie, now you realize the problem of the of the deep state and the administrative state and mandates." No, that there's a rational there's a rational limiting principle, and I'm looking at this and going, "I I don't I'm," and again, I, I feel myself pushing back, thinking, "You are about to ruin my Christmas." Um, because of these bureaucratic mandates that frankly do not make sense, there are 20 million people walking around this country unvaccinated without masks, and you have no plan for them necessarily, but you're going to hammer me. <laughs> See, uh, this is where you get into, right? And you started this conversation, Charlie, with this yeah. very question yeah. of what's the disconnect between the conversation here and the conversation in the real world? And exactly. in the real world, people are thinking about fairness all the time, right? So who should you punish? People who break the law. Who should you punish? People who are doing the wrong thing. Wait, I'm doing the right thing. I did all my vaccines. I've been wearing my mask. I kept my kid home from school. I haven't done X, Y, and Z, and I'm getting punished. And then these guys who aren't getting vaccinated are walking around and 
doing whatever they want and spreading the virus, nothing happens to them. That doesn't seem fair at all. And so if you can't have the fairness conversation, if you're losing the fairness conversation, then you're losing, right? Because it seems, you're right, as you said, it seems very arbitrary and it seems just like bureaucratic mumbo jumbo. And I think it is fair to say, you're right, Charlie, you were triple vaccinated. Now, look, you're going to take a risk. This, this is the science. Risk. Yes, right. But I'm willing. There's a risk that right. you are yep. going to do that. Are you yep. willing to take that risk? Mm-hmm. And I get mm-hmm. it. You, right? It's not just a risk to you. You could be bringing it right. back, blah, blah, blah. But if you take the test and do all the things. That feels performative. It feels like a performative yes. bureaucratic response rather than one that will, in fact, make us uh, safer. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and get into some nitty gritty of of politics. Um, if you uh, spend any time watching cable television, uh, you know that there's a big drumbeat about the Republican uh, attack. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm not trying to be snarky here. Uh, the, the Republican attack on democracy, the various ways in which they are uh, perhaps setting themselves up to change the rules in 2022 and 2024. And I find them quite alarming. But um, I also just want to get a sense of what you see happening on the ground, uh, because like on, for example, on redistricting, I know that that your colleague Dave Wasserman is predicting a, a Republican net gain of two and a half seats in the House from redistricting alone. That that does seem rather modest. So, I mean, right. we, we, we do have some gerrymandering uh, yes. going on in places like uh, Texas, but at the risk of being inundated uh, on Twitter about this, you have gerrymandering by both parties in various states, don't you? Right. So it kind of feels like it's evening out. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm, you know, the both sides. Okay. Well, in this particular case, both sides are doing yes. this, aren't they? <laughs> yes. Literally. They literally are. And the reality, I mean, you look at a state like Illinois, which yeah. my colleague David just wrote about. Mm-hmm. Day, I was thinking. About I mean, that. <laughs> the district, it, the districts themselves. I mean, no one, no reasonable person can look at those districts and not say this is an abuse of the process, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they are absolutely mangled pieces of art, <laughs> and uh, this comes at the same time that the Democratic governor, right, had said, "We are not." I am not going to sign a gerrymandered map. Right? He said that last mm-hmm. year. Okay. But he just did sign it. Yeah. So yeah. now we can all play games on this, right? And say, well, the only, and then we play the whataboutism game. Well, the only reason we're doing it is because we know that Republicans are doing it. And the only reason that, you know, we have to protect this because, you know, they, they, they're going to, they're going to undermine democracy in other ways. So we have to get as many seats as we can. And that, Right then, 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 then we never really stop this this um, conversation. It never, it doesn't feel very um, fruitful to keep going back and forth on whose fault is it and who's protecting democracy in what way. But I do think there is there is the debate about gerrymandering, which I totally agree with you that both sides are making their um, making their maps as friendly as they can for their side, but. You also have, on top of it, many more commissions than you did in, say, in 2010, which is also taking some of the advantage away from Democrats, right? This actually could have been a better redistricting cycle for Democrats had Colorado had a a process that wasn't drawn by commission or Mm -hmm. Virginia, right? Two other blue states that have pushed 
for commissions and have a commission. So the reality too that Democrats have had to grapple with is, okay, you want fair maps, that's great. But now, and a lot of them are talking about this, but now you also took seats off the table. Both sides believe the other is a threat to the mm-hmm. sanctity of democracy. And so uh, what has happened on gerrymandering is it can, is only going to convince the partisans. Who will reinforce the priors. That they were correct. Yeah. So uh, Dave Wasserman, I, I think one of his most interesting findings is that uh, competitive congressional seats are on track to yeah. decline by as much as a third making actual competitive seats the biggest victim of 2021 redistricting. So to the extent that we go into this election um, as a polarized, divided country, it'll get worse because there'll be fewer and fewer seats where the Democrat has to worry about the Republican or the Republican needs to worry about the Democrat. That's right. And that has been happening, really. This, This is a trend that's been going on for, you know, the last 25 years. When I first started covering house races, you know, you'd have a a hundred or so split ticket districts Mm -hmm. and there are 16 right now. 16. Um, That's it. Um, 16. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Just think about that. That's it. And we have the fewest number of split Senate delegations, uh, anytime since the direct election of senators, um, in 1917. Yeah. And and weirdly enough, Wisconsin is one of them with one of the most conservative and most liberal. (laughs) And not just, right. And it's not just DR, right? right. You guys, and Minnesota used to do that too, Mm -hmm. right? Have the most left-leaning R, conservative, I'm sorry, left-leaning D, conservative R. But yeah, Wisconsin is becoming just so much more of a rarity. But and it's really now, it is as much about when your seat is up as anything, yeah. right? So had Tammy Baldwin had to run, I don't know, like this kind of year or a 2010, be very different than her running in 2018. So this raises the question of going back to our over, overall theme of what matters and what doesn't matter. Um, I'm looking at some of your your leanings. It, it used to be that crazy candidates, bad candidates mattered a lot. A lot of stories of Republicans losing Senate seats because they had somebody that said something crazy. But at right now, we do have, not but, but I mean, right now, it, the Republicans um, seem to have you know quite an interesting collection of, of candidates, people like Eric Greitens in Missouri, Herschel Walker in Georgia, um, Sean Parnell has dropped out in Pennsylvania, but now Dr. Oz. So in a year like this, do candidates matter? You know, this is a, it seems like a stupid question. Like, the whole, right? Do candidates matter? And do, they do, 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 yeah, do, do they? I mean, can, can a really lousy candidate cross up the, uh, you know, counteract the the political wins that we're seeing right now. I, and I forgot to mention the crazy candidates in Ohio, you know, Josh Mandel, J.D. Vance, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, they matter until they don't. Yeah. Is that is that a, a, a good way to say it? Which is, mm-hmm. look, I, I think the reason that Republicans were successful in Virginia was exactly because they had a good candidate, Right. Put yes. any other candidate in there, even one who on paper looked good, but didn't have the money, the discipline um, that uh, that Youngkin did, you can see Terry McAuliffe pulling off a win, right? Sure. It Easy. mattered yeah. a great deal. So McAuliffe already had headwinds, but the Youngkin thing, I think, really is what 
turned the, the, the Yunkin, ca- the caliber of his candidacy really is what gave Republicans the opportunity to win that seat. In, in some ways, that's an outlier, right, though, because yeah. Yun- Yunkin did not have to go through a traditional Republican right. primary. He right. got they, they basically anointed him through this weird con- caucus system. So it's more likely in other states that rather than getting a Glenn Youngkin, you're going to get a Larry Elder type person. That's right. Now, it also is true, though, that, um, boy, in a state where, uh, Virginia, that is, that uh, Biden took 54% of the vote, he's sitting at 46% approval rating. Wow. Just imagine a state like Wisconsin, where he only won with 49%. And it drops down to 42%. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So the caliber there is less important. Now, I do still think, like, let's go to the Alabama example or Kentucky, where you had incredibly unpopular slash controversial Republican candidates in dark red states, Roy Moore, and then the governor, the, the, mm-hmm. the then governor of Kentucky. Now, yes, Trump was polarizing and unpopular, but not in those places. And even there, voters narrowly, narrowly mm-hmm. picked the Democratic candidate because the the Republican was just so bad. So I still think it is important. I guess the question, Charlie, is what does it take? Does it have to be somebody who, you know, literally the the Republican government? I remember he went into the race with like a 30% job approval rating. Okay. And Roy Moore was, was, um, a pedophile. Yeah, so the the the, uh, the pedophile clearly crossed the line. See, that's okay. that that is the problem, isn't it? Is figuring out what are the standards because they've right. shifted pretty dramatically, right? So they have, and yet I Matt, still think I still think there are certain things that like this is what happens after you have somebody like Donald Trump succeed. We assume, and I think incorrectly, that other people can get away with that. Part of right. the reason Trump got away with it is that everybody already. Um, they were already holding him to a different standard than a traditional politician. Of course he says those things. He's an on-air personality. Of course he did that. He wasn't a politician. Um, He's a businessman. So he already had a benefit of the doubt that most, you know, traditional candidates don't get. So no, this idea like, well, everybody can have a sex scandal and get away with it. Maybe, but it really depends on who are you? What do people know about you? How good are you at deflecting it and moving on from it? And um, this is why, Charlie, we still love politics, right? Because candidates matter. The campaign matters. Now, the mood matters a lot. So you're right. Just your typical, um, oh, you know, you owe back taxes or you, um, I'm just trying to think of you yeah, know, your traditional old- attack lines, right? That may not that's not going to necessarily move move the needle or some controversial piece of legislation you voted for or um that that is in normal times would move the needle may not this but, time but there there's still a needle to be moved yeah. so uh, by the way um the the governor of Kentucky Matt Bevan thank you Matt Bevan thank who you. was uh, who yeah who, who managed to uh, lose in a state that is a uh, pretty overwhelmingly republican exactly. okay one last question Amy mm-hmm. does Trump run in 2024 I mean, I can't believe he doesn't. 
Yeah, that's where I'm, I'm just, at. I'm just at the place. <laughs> I think we have to we have to assume that he runs until he definitively says he doesn't. And given what we know, if if we have a 2022 that looks anything like what we're looking at right now, that's a big win for Republicans, right? And that only puts wind in the sails, um, and it's own for for Trump. And it's only going to raise questions that we're going to be talking about. I'm sure you're going to be talking about mm-hmm. on TV every day after the election about what is Joe Biden going to do? And we're going to spend much of the end of 22, early 23 saying, is Biden going to run? Is Biden going to run? Yeah. What's Biden going to do? What's Kamala Harris going to do? What are Democrats doing? Much more so than Trump. But the irony is the Democratic field is shaped just as much by Donald Trump as the Republican field, right? So- Worries about Trump change the dynamics of a Democratic primary. Dramatically. Yeah. yeah. Amy Walter, thank you so much this for so fun, Charlie. joining me. Thank, thank you. You should do this this radio thing. You're pretty good at it. Well, we do this every day. <laughs> yeah. So again, Amy Walter is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. It is always a pleasure to talk with you, Amy. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.